Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 338th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. You're brought to you today by the American Health Information Management Association. We know them as AHIMA. And joining me this morning is my co-host, the very, very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD Incorporated. Good morning, Erica. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. This morning, we continue our reporting on the proposed E&M changes. Your friend Sally Stryper will join us later in the broadcast. She has the second of our two-part series, Proposed E&M Changes. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Today, Sally will be reporting on the good and the bad aspects of the proposed E&M changes. We certainly have had a lot of comments on those proposed changes, haven't we? Uh, We certainly have, and with more reporting on those proposed changes, nationally recognized coding authority Terry Fletcher is on today's broadcast. Terry's going to be reporting on the medical specialties that are expected to be hit the hardest if those E&M changes become final. I know I can name a few of those. I'm sure you can. Go. Cardiology, neurology, rheumatology, nephrology, oncology, pulmonary, the list goes on and on. (laughs) That's very impressive. I thought I heard you say Scientology. Maybe that too. It could be. Terry's going to report on the proposed 50% reduction on procedure codes with Modifier 25. Speaking of codes, Lori Johnson is back with us this morning. Lori will preview the upcoming ICD-10 Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting getting underway on Tuesday, September 11th. Lori is also going to be reporting live during the meeting on our broadcast on the 11th. Glenn Krauss has our CDI report. He will be reporting on how providers often focus too closely on reimbursement as the primary objective and endpoint of chart reviews. That's very interesting because Glenn's reporting comes on the heels of a lawsuit that was filed against Providence St. Joseph Health. That lawsuit seeks over $188 million related to alleged upcoding of Medicare claims. So that's really big news. We have a lot of news to report here during this broadcast, so we begin this morning with Dr. Larry Field. He's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University, inviting you to visit the new ICD-10 Monitor webcast subscription portal. See the link in the handout tab in today's program, or visit the ICD University web store. Here now is Dr. Larry Field. Good morning, everybody. Obviously, there's a lot of controversy in regards to the E&M uh, issue that's ongoing, uh, which affects physicians and helps remove physicians from uh, the pool of providing care to patients. But we also have the other side. And in a recent article from uh, Medical Economics, there was a, an article written by Dr. Bernard who, entitled, Who Do Patients Really Need? Physicians or Administrators? And there was an interview with a CEO of a not-for-profit large healthcare system in Wisconsin who, in quotes, said patients need primary care but not necessarily a physician relationship. I would take odds with that. If we're going to provide care and we want to be on the mission of providing quality care, then we need people that are trained at the highest level to provide that care. And there's an instance that in uh, Texas, a group of pediatricians were all fired and replaced by nurse practitioners and PAs. There's nothing wrong with nurse practitioner or the PA profession, zero. But they are not trained at the same level as a pediatrician. I take personal odds with that 
for a couple reasons. One has to do with the quality of care that's going to be delivered, and the other is we're exposing or taking away the chance of a pediatrician to inspire uh, perhaps young individuals to go on and be a physician themselves. We obviously know there's a shortage of physicians in the country, and personally, I was inspired when I was young by a pediatrician at age 10 who sacrificed uh, part of his weekend to come in and put a couple sutures into my forearm. At that point, that was when I decided I wanted to be a doctor. Removing exposure of highly qualified people to direct the best quality care is a mistake, and we're seeing the beginnings of that occur for financial reasons over and over and over, and it's becoming a lot more acute, obviously, with the changes in reimbursement. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much, Dr. Field. That was Dr. Larry Field. Dr. Field is the treasurer at the American College of Physician Advisors. It's Tuesday. It's August of 28, 2018, and you're listening to the 338th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Talk 10 Tuesday is brought to you today by AHIMA, the American Health Information Management Association. Were you previously trained in ICD-10 but noticed gaps in your training? Would you like to improve your coding skills and knowledge? Or are you having trouble coding advanced cases in ICD-10-CM, ICD-10-PCS, or CPT? If you answered yes to any of these, then we have the workshop for you. AHIMA's Crack the Codes Advanced Coding Workshop walks you through identifying correct codes with actual redacted patient health records. Create your own one- to four-day training schedule by choosing the classification systems that meet your needs and get a thorough review of ICD-10-CM, ICD-10-PCS, or CPT. Don't miss AHIMA's highest-rated face-to-face meeting starting December 6th in Las Vegas. Visit ahima.org events to learn more and to register. CMS will be conducting its ICD-10 Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting. That meeting takes place on Tuesday, September the 11th. Senior Healthcare Consultant and ICD-10 Monitor Contributor Lori Johnson is back. She has a preview of the two-day meeting coming up. Good morning, Lori. What's on the docket? Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, Erica, and to all of our loyal Talk 10 Tuesday listeners. Um, Today, I wanted to try to answer the question, why did that code get created? The Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting meets Um, publicly in March and September each year. There are approved proposals that are presented to to the attendees, and they are now presented live and to virtual attendees. These proposals address why the code is needed. All of the attendees are permitted to comment. There is also a comment period after the meeting as well. Attendees will ask questions or make statements regarding how the code fits into the classification system, the associated instructional notes, and maybe some suggestions, and how physicians or other healthcare professionals will document related to the, pr- the proposed code. The spirit of the code is captured during this debate. I find this extremely educational Um, And AAPC and AHIMA will grant CE credits for the hours you attend online or in person for free. The agendas and details are available under the handout tab, and the procedures are first up, 
So I would encourage you to attend. I just wanted to highlight, um, I think if Emily will show the handout that has the meeting logistics, that I have provided for you the the URL for the broadcast as well as the dial-in numbers, and then the meeting ID will change um, from day one, which is September 11th, and day 12, if needed, is September 12th. So that access number changes, and there's URLs for the meeting materials. We've also um, put the agendas, as I said before, in the handout tab, tab as well. But here is just um, a quick uh, synopsis of some of the um, topics that will be presented on the 11th and 12th. The normal process is they'll start with the procedures. If they finish with the procedures on day one, they will then jump to the diagnoses. But it's um, definitely slowed down. I think we've um, gotten through the ICD-10 implementation at this point. So now it's just as people are starting to analyze the classification system and identifying what is needed at this point. So back to you, Erica. Thank you, Lori. That was Senior Healthcare Consultant Lori Johnson. Lori is with Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, and thank you very much, Lori. And good news, Lori's going to be monitoring and reporting on the CNM meeting coming up on September 11th. She's also going to be talking about it on Tuck 10 Tuesday. Thanks again, Lori. We continue our series, CMS, Are You Listening? We have two reports this morning. Nationally recognized coding authority Terry Fletcher reports on how some specialties are expected to be impacted if the proposed rule becomes final effective October 1st. And later, Sally Stryber returns with part two of her series, Proposing Them Changes the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Here now is Terry Fletcher. Thank you, Chuck. Good morning, everyone. So as we've been speaking and focusing this past month on the 2019 CMS proposal to redefine the documentation requirements, for evaluation and management, or our ENM services, and coding in 2019, along with flattening payments for new and established patient office visits to a single-pay system. There is an even further concern uh, that the reimbursement declined for physicians with the additional proposed reduction of the 25 modifier. When this is placed on an ENM service and performed on the same date as a minor procedure, there will be a reduction to the ENM service. So first of all, under the proposal, CMS is offering a flat payment rate of $93 for established office visit codes and a single payment rate of $135 for new patient visit codes, 99202 to 205, and then the other 99212 to 215, respectively. But what is missing in all of this is the reality of the reimbursement concerns, especially for specialty physicians who are taking care of sicker patients who need more time, effort, and higher level of care to manage the complex issues. So with this proposal in effect, those uh, physicians in specialties such as oncology, neurology, and rheumatology are all looking at an approximate 7% reduction, cardiology, pulmonary, and nephrology around 3%, but endocrinology is faring the worst at about 10%. This does nothing to cut spending under Medicare program, but more redistributes the money among physicians. So CMS not only is proposing to attach the same RVU to the levels 2 through 5 code for both new and established patient. Most of the impact will be focused on the level four and five established visit with a 15% cut of about 16 to $23. And these codes are about 89% of all the allowed charges, according to CMS data from 2016. 
and practices routinely billing the 99204 code, new patient visit, would see about a 13% decrease in reimbursement. Your ANM profile would determine if you are in the win or lose column with this proposal. Now, CMS states under the proposed rule that Medicare would only require documentation to support the medical necessity of the visit at the current Level 2 requirement, but you may have a complex patient who qualifies at a Level 4 or 5, and your, but your documentation would only have to meet a Level 2 standard. That's a concern for me. So as an auditor and an educator, I'm not really sure what physicians could do with that from a compliance standpoint. There are other potential add-on HICS-PICS codes for an additional possible 30 minutes of time and other practice expense HICS-PICS codes that are part of the proposal, but they do not yet offer a frequency guideline or a time threshold flexibility, just more codes for coders to learn and enter, meaning more administrative work. If the E&M changes weren't enough to ponder, the proposed fee schedule also represents another blow to the physician reimbursement model with that uh, 25 modifier 50% reduction. Many insurance carriers on the commercial end have already been doing this, and CMS is now proposing to do that as well. So think about how many times you place a modifier 25 on an E&M service when providing a second service, such as a skin tag removal, an injection, a diagnostic test on the same day or an encounter. Often done for patient convenience and for physician efficiency, CMS is proposing to reduce reimbursement for such services by half, meaning at about $47 to $68 on a sick appointment encounter. This reduction model previously has only been applied to surgical procedures when multiple procedures are performed during the same surgical event. So the impact of this change on physician office-based and outpatient-based services would be dramatic. This could lead to increased costs to beneficiaries being required to return to the office for multiple visits due to the bundling of the services and increased co-payments for them. An example of this cut would be, for example, another diabetic patient presenting for an E&M service and needing a toenail pairing, and the E&M would be reduced by 50%. Or if a patient presented for knee pain and a joint injection was performed at the same encounter, again, the E&M would be reduced by 50%. The modifier 25 serves as a true indicator of a significantly separately identifiable evaluation and management service above and beyond the pre-service workup of a procedure performed on the same day by by the same physician and as such, I believe, should remain untouched to ensure that Medicare, all Medicare beneficiaries are provided appropriate care and evaluations and are not forced to make repeat visits, resulting in increased copayments and out-of-pocket costs, not to mention unwarranted, burdensome, and expensive travel back to the office. There needs to be a revision to this proposed model by CMS, as the holes in the proposal and the lack of understanding what the long-term effects could be by allowing physicians to under-document for complex patients could be catastrophic to the medical profession. I believe delaying this change for at least a year to allow many details related to program integrity and ongoing development to be refined is imperative. The sub-regulatory guidance is going to be absolutely critical, and the proposal as it stands would be tough for other payers to react and adjust their policies with so little time to implement. The public comment period for this expires September 10th. That is a short time away. So if you disagree or need to comment, and we actually urge you to, with any of the proposed changes above, and if you have a stake in this, not just physicians, you, your physicians, your patients, how this proposal will impact them, read our article that dropped today on the proposed fee schedule with further cuts, and please follow the instructions on how to comment before the deadline. Back to you, Dr. Reamer. Thanks, Terry. That was nationally recognized coding authority, Terry Fletcher. Terry is also a member of the ICD-10 Monitor Editorial Board. Thanks, Erica. And thank you very much, Terry. And you can read Terry's reporting on the impact of the pros and changes in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor E-News. 
One of the major healthcare news stories is a lawsuit that was filed against Providence St. Joseph Health. It's a lawsuit that seeks over $188 million related to alleged upcoding of Medicare claims. Now, in the light of that major story, we asked CDI expert Glenn Kraus to report how many times some providers are actually misusing CDI. Glenn? By now, most everyone is quite familiar with the lawsuit against Providence Health, totaling $188 million for alleged upcoding carried out, orchestrated, and perpetuated by CDI processes. While these alleged documentation practices and processes are rooted in an overwhelming, deep-seated focus upon reimbursement using overly aggressive documentation techniques, CDI as a profession must recognize and call into question the current methodological processes that are fundamental CDI initiatives today. This unrelenting emphasis upon using today's KPIs driving CDI process is what I refer to as performance without purpose. Number of queries left, number of queries responded to by physician, CC, MCC, capture rate, etc., are nothing more than measures of tasks assigned to CDI consisting of queries. Queries are intended to generate outcomes of reimbursement, the ultimate measure of successful CDI programs. The real concern I have with this model, I hope other CDI professionals, physician advisors, and C-suite types will realize is that at the end of the day, CDI is not improving documentation at all. I submit to you the following model of CDI that I advocate for and follow in my role as CDI manager. Create a vision that inspires physicians to embrace commitment as willing participants in learning about, becoming much more proficient in and adhering to documentation processes that reflect good patient care. Rather than promoting and referring to ourselves as documentation improvement specialists, our CDI staff prefer to describe our role as facilitators in communication of patient care. We take this notion to heart by enhancing the breadth and depth of knowledge, skill sets, and core competencies as best practice standards and principles of documentation. So we may review the record holistically and identify real opportunities for improvement in the communication of patient care. The CDI specialist has become more fluent in reviewing an H&P and identifying specific opportunities for enhancement in the communication of patient care, areas such as ensuring a robust but succinct H&P, history of present illness, focusing upon the present versus past illness, and asking ourselves as we read the HPI, does it reflect sufficiently and accurately the patient's clinical presentation, including acuity of signs and symptoms? Does a physical exam performed as documented congruent with the HPI and assessment? Does the assessment consist merely of, as a collection of data points, abnormal lab values and findings? Does the physician include clinically relevant provisional diagnosis for symptoms reported, such as abdominal pain with provisional diagnosis relevant to the presentation and findings? So, in essence, what I'm asking CDI people to really can focus upon is, is what I refer to as an initial starting point to CDI to accompany our quest for complete and accurate diagnosis reporting. Record must speak for itself, not just a diagnosis. It's time for real change in our CDI processes. If you haven't seen the lawsuit, I hope that you'll take the moment to read it. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Glenn. That was Glenn Kraus. Glenn is a CDI manager at the University Health Systems in Las Vegas. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, there's a great deal of reaction to the CMS proposal and changes, so much so that we continue with our series, CMS, Are You Listening? Here now with part two of her two-part series, proposing and changes the good, the bad, and the ugly, is Sally Strawberry. We started with the ugly last week, so let's 
carry on with the good and the bad. So the 2019 proposed rule for the physician fee schedule has some interesting and insightful ideas. I really like to give credit where credit is due, and it's not too often that I actually agree with CMS. So here we go with the good. If there's one thing that gives me some hope that someone at CMS actually appears to understand how patient care is delivered, it's the proposed concept of being able to verify the information in the history of present illness that has been gathered by ancillary staff without the need to redocument information that was actually gathered correctly. The idea of being able to assign a level of service based on either time without the additional requirement of there being greater than 50% of the time spent in counseling or coordination of care, or only on the single component of medical decision-making should lessen the documentation requirements for simple, straightforward issues to that of the proposed Level 2 visits, but it won't help for high-acuity care. Virtual visits are an interesting idea and will be the likely replacement of the telephone services visits now available. Now on to the bad. How do all of these time-saving ideas affect your real practice? Remember, there is allegedly no binding influence on Medicare Managed Care, Medicaid, Medicaid Managed Care, or any of the commercial payers. So how will anyone know how much documentation is really needed? And what about the differences between the primary and the secondary insurances? How will the documentation responsibilities for the secondary payer be determined? This all gets grayer and grayer as you work through the permutations. Also remember about all of those productivity parameters required to keep up with provider contract requirements and getting annual bonuses. How do these get configured now? Thinking forward, if you can only get paid for an acuity level of somewhere between a level 3 and a level 4, what is the incentive for seeing high acuity patients? Is the addition of a $14 complex visit code really going to cut it? And there is the idea of the add-on prolonged services code for another $67. But remember that time adds up, and you will very quickly end up seeing only about one-half to two-thirds of the volume of patients you used to see using this model. Timeline this model out and see what happens. If you lose money on every visit, it isn't possible to make that up in volume. It will be very important to set the documentation parameters required for your providers within your organization. When the first audit requests come in, and they will, you will need a very definitive guideline as to the expected documentation requirements. Interpretation of the documentation guidelines differ from MAC to MAC now. Can you just imagine the first audits for this new set of parameters? This isn't going to get better. Remember that CMS isn't going to do anything that is not for its own benefit. My last point would be this. Be certain to voice your viewpoints to CMS. Remember, silence implies consent. While some of these proposed plans are worthwhile, many are not. Let CMS hear your voice. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, Sally. And I have to admit that I'm finding it so frustrating that everybody seems to think that documentation is for reimbursement. We have to remember the United States is like the only country that uses coding that comes from the documentation as their methodology for reimbursement. And documentation is really meant to help us take excellent care of patients. And it frustrates me that it all boils down to money. But I'm an idealist, I guess. That was my friend, Sally Stryber. Sally is the president of Practical Coding Solutions, LLC. Thank you, Sally, and back to you, Chuck.
Thank you, Erica, very much. And thank you, Sally, for an excellent report. Now's the time for our very popular segment here at Talk to Tuesday, and that's called Talk Back with Dr. Erica Reamer. So, once again, here is Talk to Tuesday co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, what's on your mind today? Chuck, in my consulting activities, I sometimes find CDSs feeling like they're on a hunt to find CCs and MCCs. The goal should never be to try to make providers create conditions which aren't there. The goal should be to ensure that the diagnoses derived from the documentation tell the story of the patient encounter. There are certain pathologies which I am attuned to when I am reviewing a case. For example, I always assess mental status in every patient. An abnormal mental status often signals severe pathology. Some CDSs are confused about altered mental status being integral to specific underlying conditions. They have been given misguided instructions to not code encephalopathy because it is, quote, integral to stroke or overdose, close quote, for instance. Let's take subdural hematoma, which I shared with you last week that my father just had one. For five weeks, he was going about his business, and we were all oblivious to the fact that he had a brain bleed. One day, his housekeeper informed us he was sleepy. This led to an emergency craniotomy. The decreased level of consciousness heralding encephalopathy was and I use this word in a semantic sense, not in the coding sense, a manifestation of the progression of the bleed and from brain compression. Every doctor has a story of a grossly abnormal head CT scan in a patient who seemed to be cognitively intact. If there is a spectrum of manifestations, in this case, normal mental status to encephalopathy, to coma, to brain death, then the status of the brain constitutes an additional diagnosis and code. It adds to the depiction of how sick and complex the patient is. It's different from fever or cough in pneumonia. Those are almost always found in conjunction and would be integral to the infection, not additional codes. They don't portend any worse prognosis. They don't add anything to the story. Encephalopathy adds a dimension of severity to the underlying condition. Strokes don't usually manifest it. Overdoses may be asymptomatic or not. The coding guidelines tell us to use the poisoning as a principal diagnosis and to use additional codes for all the manifestations of poisonings. But getting the provider to document encephalopathy if it isn't really there is not ethical. This shouldn't be viewed as a game. Besides the, facts, besides the fact that the stakes are very high if you're caught cheating, the statistics and benchmarking will get completely thrown off if institutions aren't accurately portraying their patient populations. In conclusion, it is acceptable to anticipate certain conditions which are associated with other conditions and check the chart to see if they are present. However, I would strongly suggest that your motives stop being to seek out CCs and MCCs and shift to wanting to tell the story of the patient encounter as accurately and thoroughly as possible. The patient should look as sick and complex as he or she is, no less and no more. That's it for me, Chuck. 
Thank you very much, Dr. Reamer. That was Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the co-host here at Talk to Tuesday. Thanks very much for that insight. We've asked our panelists to stick around, actually coax them to stick around for our roundtable discussion. So around our virtual roundtable this morning, Dr. Larry Field, Terry Fletcher, Lori Johnson, Glenn Krauss, and Sally Stryber. Dr. Reamer, let's take a look at some of the questions that are coming in. Larry, this may be for you. Steve asks, is there a scenario where we could recommend the use of NPs in place of pediatricians where available physicians or budget do not allow for pediatricians to be deployed? And I would imagine this is similar for like an internist or, you know, any kind of a uh, specialty that uh, NP or PA could um, participate. So, for example, perhaps in sparse rural or understaffed poor urban areas, like as an alternative to not having affordable access or care for all. There's obviously a trend to put uh, what we would call physician extenders out there, but that's actually what appears to be the realm of telemedicine these days, and that you're going to see academia, uh, play large university centers, uh, developing telemedicine out to those rural areas rather than even placing a nurse practitioner or PA. So I don't I, – do I see a need? Sure, there's a need that – does there still need to be oversight? Of course, but I think there's going to be a trend more towards telemedicine, uh, which to me, again, I'm, I'm not a big fan, um, but it does increase access where people do not have to travel. But is it the best access? I'm not so sure. Actually, I think that that's a in- very interesting concept. I wonder if they could be used in conjunction. So um, I know that when I was in the emergency department, I felt like I was value added to my physician extenders um, I felt that they were very useful and they um, served their purpose admirably, but I felt like I added something to the patient encounter. I wonder if there's a way of having telemedicine with a physician and having the hands-on being the nurse practitioner or the physician uh, assistant because I do think that there is some real value to being there and being able to touch the patient and f- listen to the patient and experience the patient um, as opposed to just doing it by telemedicine, like, uh, you know, Skype. So that's kind of an interesting concept. If you take that further, you're going to end up with, you know, the hub-and-spoke system of the airlines. You know, you have to be careful how far you wish to take that model. It's an interesting concept, and I I think that we are going to see things developing over the next, you know, 10 or 20 years, don't you? Certainly, and I hope there's more doctors in charge of trying to do this than just business people. Agreed. Thank you for your comments, everybody. We know that there were like over 3,000 comments to CMS on the proposed E&M change. That's going to be a wrap for us. I want to thank you all for being with us today on our 338th edition of Talk to Tuesday. And I want to thank Dr. Larry Field, Terry Fletcher, whom you just heard, Lori Johnson. Uh, Sally Stratford, of course, Dr. Eric Reamer. Program note, there won't be a Talk to Tuesday next Tuesday, September 4th. We're going to be taking a brief time out to reserve Labor Day. Hope you'll be with us the following Tuesday, September 11th. That's we have our special live coverage of the Coordination Maintenance Committee meeting. Also, I want to give a shout-out today to longtime listener Gwendolyn. She's going to be retiring, not from coding, she says, but she's not going to be listening to these broadcasts anymore. Gwen, thanks very much for listening. I hope you all have a great and compliant Labor Day weekend. I'm Chuck Buck, speaking on behalf of Dr. Eric Reamer. And everybody here at Talk 10 Tuesday, and Isaac to 10 Monitor. Have a great week, everyone. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.